so I'm gonna switch gears just a little bit, but I wanna ask a question first. Have any of you guys ever heard of an almanac? Okay, how many of you own one? <laughs> Maybe one or two people. Almanacs are not that common in our day and age, but let me, let me try this. How many of you guys know about Instagram? Okay, quite a bit more. For those of you guys that haven't jumped on the Instagram bandwagon, Instagram is essentially just a modern day almanac. It's, it's a collection of pictures and those pictures represent a memory. Almanacs are something that have been throughout our history and they all have their own concentration, whether it's medicine or you know, biological sciences or, or whatever. You can obviously tell I'm not a scientist because I don't even know what else they would be. But they all have a purpose and their purpose is that somebody decided what was in that book was important for somebody in the future. We do that in our Instagram accounts, right? In my own Instagram account, I look back at pictures and I remember times when my kids were super cute and super little, and it helps me when they're not super cute and super little. <laughs> because as my eight and my 10 and my 12 year old get bigger and bigger and bigger, they become less cute and less little. I need those reminders. Anybody else need those reminders? <laughs> Maybe it's just me. And when we were, you know, when we were thinking about or talking about the community question today, we were talking about what is our earliest memory. I sat there and was like, um, I think maybe I was like five or six. I vaguely remember owning a pink tackle box and a pink fishing pole. I grew up in the South, so fishing is like, it's like normal. It's like surfing, but like more boring. And so I was like given this tackle box and this fishing pole and I remember sitting in a boat with my dad and the way that my dad um, hung out with us was by convincing us that the fish could hear us talk so we had to be quiet while we were fishing. Needless to say, fishing is not my favorite thing to do. But I remember the, the, the fishing pole. I don't remember much else. I'd kind of all of those years are pretty vague but there's a few things here or there. And actually the reason why that's kind of hard for us to remember those things is because as humans, we're actually really, really good at forgetting things. There's this uh, German psychologist, his name is, I think Ebbinghaus, I am not German, I definitely butchered that, but something along those lines. He, uh, he actually studied how easy it is for us to forget things. And in his study, he found that within a week, we retain less than 20% of what we hear or what we experience. Like, that's crazy. But it's not really crazy because if you try and think about what you had for lunch on Monday, there's a solid chance you have no idea. It's pretty normal. The thing is that forgetfulness isn't just about what we remember, it also can take on other elements. Have any of you guys ever promised something? Yeah, that's pretty normal. I mean, as kids, like, I would promise everything. I promised that I did the dishes when I didn't. I promised that I cleaned my room when I was going to at some point. I promised that I was gonna be this person's best friend forever, and I can vaguely remember her face. I have no idea, actually, who she is. So we make promises, and we forget them just as easily as we forget what we had for lunch on Monday, right? That is actually sin 
and its effect on our life. Because sin isn't actually something that we do. I mean, it is something that we do, but it's more than that. Sin actually affects our bodies. Have, are any of you guys aging? Yeah? Anybody ever have a headache? That is sin. That is the effect of sin on our body. You see, in, before sin came into the, this, this whole story, we were perfect. We were perfect. We had perfect memories. We had perfect bodies. But sin entered in, and we became less perfect. So now we are forgetful, and we get old. <laughs> you know, the great thing, though, about sin and our nature is that God isn't affected by it. Now, hear me when I say that there's not anything great about sin except for that God's not affected by it. That's the only good thing. God's nature isn't affected by this forgetfulness. The Bible actually says really clearly that God is faithful. We're the ones that are forgetful. God is faithful. We are forgetful. That is where we're going to start today. The Old Testament and the New Testament writers were really clear on this. God's faithfulness was never in question. We can see it in every book throughout the Bible. Verse after verse after verse. Something will talk about God's faithfulness. And this isn't like the faithfulness that we try to be. We, we try to be faithful. But this is like next level faithfulness. We're talking about unmoving, unchanging reliability. This is like the Brinks home security system that never fails. This is something that the, the writers of the Bible, they didn't question it. God is faithful. That was a truth statement that didn't even, there wasn't a chance it was wrong. But what does that mean for us? I don't know if you guys do this, but sometimes I read the Bible and I go, okay, that's fun. What does it mean? So, that's where we're going to go. In uh, Hebrews 6 is where we're going to start. So if you guys want to grab the blue Bibles in front of you guys, it is on page 582. And we're going to start in verse 13. So in, first thir- or in verse 13, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. That sounds great. What does it mean? That's a lot, right? So we're going to break it down. First, I need you to know that we don't know who wrote Hebrews. No, the theologians have discussed it and, and have thrown names out, but really we don't know because they never name themselves. It's, you know, some of Paul's books, he says this is Paul writing to Hebrews. It's not like that. So we don't know who wrote it, but what we do know is that whoever wrote it 
knew the Hebrew culture. He knew the Jewish people. And the way that we know that is by the metaphors that he used and the people he referenced. One of these metaphors that the author uses to describe our Christian hope is the idea of an anchor. You see, anchors would actually be really easy for the Hebrew people to understand. They, they could immediately recognize what the purpose of an anchor was because waterways and, and trade and boats and, and, and all of these things, that was part of their culture, just like it is here in San Diego. We're surrounded by boats of some kind, right? I remember the first time that uh, my husband took me to the 32nd Street uh, dock. And you guys can and see all of the ships as you cross over Coronado or downtown. There's, there's ships everywhere, and they're huge. But what I remember being so um, funny was my husband pointed out an anchor on this really, really ginormous ship. And I thought he was joking when he said that that was the anchor. Like, I, th I thought it was a joke because it's tiny compared to the size of this ship. Like, in comparison, there is no way this anchor is going to do anything. That's like a feather compared to a boulder. It's just crazy, right? But he started to talk to me about being in the Indian Ocean and having these, these hurricane-like storms and the wind and the waves come and they have to drop anchor and it steadies them. He said that it's not something that you can really understand until you feel it, but that it's something that when you need it, you're really glad it works. So. What the author of Hebrews is trying to say for people that would have understand the purpose of an anchor is this anchor is actually like God's faithfulness. That in the midst of the waves and the wind of our lives, that that anchor, God's faithfulness, is what keeps us steady. What we have to, to understand, really, what we have to grasp, though, is, is a step further. God's faithfulness is what keeps us steady but it's also what is, what, where hope is anchored. That's what it says. Our ability to hope is actually anchored in the nature of God, in his faithfulness. So we've gone from going, okay, this is, this is you know, good information, to, okay, wait, hold on. This might actually mean something. Here, here's, our, here's where it means something. Our hope is anchored in the nature of who God is. And again... If you're anything like me, sometimes people say something from a stage or read something out of a Bible and you go, okay, that sounds really great in theory. Again, what does that actually mean for me? What it means for us in real life is that our ability to hope at all for anything in our future is anchored in the fact that God is faithful. In verse 17, it actually highlights God's oath-making um, as something that we need to, to wrestle with. God makes oaths with his people. In the, in the verse, it actually says oath and swear and promise multiple times because this idea of oath-making was, again, something that the Hebrew people were familiar with. In their culture, oath-making was, it, that was normal. That was something that they did all the time because that's how they guaranteed that whatever they said they were gonna do, they were gonna do. So God is using their terminology to help them understand what it is he is trying to say. This, this oath-making for us, it, it's kind of hard, it's out of our context, but basically, this is just a fancy way of saying, I promise 
or I swear. Maybe some of you guys have had to do this more than me, but I have only had to swear an oath twice. Once I was a jury duty, and the second time was when I got married. And literally both times, my heart was beating out of my chest. It was really, really horrible. <laughs> it's so hard, and the reason it's so hard to make these oaths as humans is because we know us. We know that we're probably not gonna keep our word because it's hard, right? Keeping our word is not something we're really good at. So then when we have to do it, we're like, I don't know, can I? Like, maybe, I swear. But God, in this verse, he's really different. It, in the first line, it says that God swore to himself. I mean, and that kind of makes sense because when we say, I swear to God, like, you know, we're swearing to something bigger, but God, who else is God gonna swear to? Like. He is God. Kind of means something different, right? I swear to myself. All right, cool. So I swear to myself, because I don't lie, that you can trust me. That's what this says. I swear to myself, because I don't lie, that you can trust me. That shows how serious he is about his promise. Because you can trust me, I promise that what I've said is gonna happen. Even further, though, into this legal terminology, there were terms of a contract. So even more than just the overarching idea that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, he actually is guaranteeing by making an oath that the terms of the contract are not going to change. Reliable, stable, unchanging. Not just big picture, but in the details. The terms of the contract are not gonna change. That being said, promises and hope have one thing in common. Any ideas? They are futuristic. Futuristic means there is an inherent weight. We wouldn't make a promise about something if it wasn't gonna happen in the future because we would just do it. There's no need to make a promise. There's no need for an oath. There's no need for a contract because we're just gonna do it, right? But it says that he, he, made, he makes these promises. There, there's something that's gonna be fulfilled in the future. And waiting demands something by its nature. It demands our patience. That's where it gets tricky because Waiting for, some, for us is, is not something that comes easy. Patience is one of the most known virtues we have, but also one of the most difficult virtues to grasp. It's because of our hurry up, type A, charge ahead kind of a culture. We, we live in this drive-through, microwave kind of a world that honestly, because of the nation that we live in and how privileged we are, we are actually uninterested in being inconvenienced or uncomfortable with waiting. Here's an example. I really don't like when I have to get out of my car to get my coffee. I'm gonna be honest, I don't like it. I am multitasking all the time, I don't like waiting. So when I go to Starbucks and I go through the drive-through, I find myself annoyed when people wait or take too long, they have complicated orders, they get food and it takes forever, I just want my coffee, so hurry up. 
So sometimes I'll see the drive-thru and I'll go, oh man, there's people in the line. I'm gonna make this even quicker. I'm gonna order on my app and then I'm just gonna hop out of my car, I'm gonna run in and it's gonna be sitting on the little stand. I'm gonna just be able to grab it and go. And sometimes it's still not there. Sometimes I walk in and I still have to wait because everybody else had the same idea and the coffee is still not there and I'm still waiting. And that is, that's our nature. We don't like to wait. But see, in this verse, it says this thing that we, we have to get to. It says, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. After waiting patiently. I, when I read that, kind of skimmed through it, but the problem is we can't actually skim through that part. That's, that's like the key right here. God has this purpose of putting us in this waiting room you see, Abraham, who he's talking about here, he wanted to be a father. And for 40 years, he prayed for a child. And after 40 years of praying for a child, God said, I'm going to give you a child. I am promising you a child. Problem is, he had to wait another 25 or so years before he got that child. So we are talking about like 65 years of waiting. I don't want to wait for my coffee. We're talking about 65 plus years of waiting for a child. That is a long time. I guarantee you that was inconvenient and uncomfortable. But in the midst of that waiting, you know, it, it says if we read on, God, or because he waited patiently, he obtained the promise. He obtained the promise because he waited patiently. However, if you read that story, he didn't always wait patiently. He kind of got desperate in the middle of it, in the middle of the waiting. He kind of got hopeless, and we have a whole side of a family line because he did not wait. Got messy, got complicated. He became hopeless, and things didn't go as planned. That right there that hopeless part of trying to wait patiently and it not working out, you know, that right there is actually where I go, man, Abraham, I see you. There's not much that I really can like understand because there's a few thousand years in an entirely different culture between us, right? But that being impatient thing, that hopelessness that comes from an inability to wait, that is the area where I'm like, man, me and Abraham, we would have some stuff to talk about over coffee. That's the spot. <laughs> because in my life, waiting is not something I'm good at, but God really, really likes to make me wait. I think he's, I think we're working something out there. In my marriage, it was nothing, no, no different. Because when I got married, I got married um, pretty young, I'd say, you know, and my husband and I, we both had this idea, this like princess idea, maybe he not as much as me, but we had this idea that the marriages that we had seen growing up, that ours were gonna be different. We had this idea that we actually were not going to, to do that same thing, and then we had a friend who prayed over us and gave us this, this word, this promise that our marriage would be different. And so we're like, yes, this is God's promise. This is not going to be the same. We're not going to get divorced. We're not going to, you know, fight. We're, we're, we're not going to, our marriage is going to be like perfect, right? 
And for those first little bit, like, it was really easy to keep my promise that I made on my wedding day that said I was going to love and honor him and not be super annoyed when he left the toilet paper out and that he would not be super annoyed when we, when I burned every pan that we had because I can't cook. Like, it was fine. There were little arguments, but we're not talking about anything that would ruin that idea that we had in our head. The thing, though, was is that it was really good until it wasn't. And when it wasn't really good, it was really, really bad. And I remember thinking, this is not what I signed up for. This is not the promised land. This is not even on the outskirts of the promised land. This doesn't feel good. Not what I signed up for. I don't want to do this. I remember thinking, if I have to fight one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. It's actually going to be gone. If I have to cry one more tear, my eyeballs are going to fall out. I cannot physically do this anymore. And what I realized was that I couldn't fix our marriage. I, I, I had lost all hope that anything was even going to get better because I couldn't fix it. And I'm a fixer. And I couldn't fix it. I couldn't fix anything that I had wrong with me, and I couldn't fix what I thought was going to be perfect. I remember thinking in my head, because this couldn't possibly be what God had promised us, that he had also given up. He had gone, man, nope, not going to work out. That's how I felt. And I remember, like it was yesterday, the day that I gave up on my marriage. I remember it vividly, and it's a haunting memory. Because unlike not remembering when I went fishing when I was five, that's a memory that is etched in my mind in a way that I can't forget. And before I finish the story, I want to go back to that study that Ebbinghaus did. The thing that he found with memories and with forgetting is that we actually forget less when we engage more with our emotions. Also, we forget less when we engage more with remembering. And so when I was talking about Instagram and how that is a, a way that I remember the good things, that's, that's kind of what Ebbinghaus was talking about. For that moment, when we look at that picture, we relive that moment, and it helps us to get that memory farther and farther into our minds. The thing, though, is, is that Instagram is kind of like our highlight reel. I mean, it definitely is for me. I don't, I don't have moments that are really hard on there. What I have are the moments that I felt like Rocky Balboa on the top of the stairs with my hands in the air going, I'm going to conquer the world. Those are the moments that end up on my highlight reel. Because the moments that I don't need help remembering, those are the moments that have marked my life. And they're the moments that cause me pain. They're the moments that sometimes even cause me shame. I mean, I don't think this is just a me thing. How many of you guys are really good at remembering the hard things, but have a hard time remembering the good things? Like, this is, this is a human thing. 
We're really good at doing that. So I get that this might be uncomfortable, and I, I, I respect that. For me, I'm uh, same. This is, this is hard stuff, but there's a point to all of this. In the middle of my separation and this impending divorce, I remember feeling so hopeless. I was nowhere near the mountaintop. I was nowhere near the top of the stairs. Rocky Balboa was nowhere in sight. I was in the valley, and there was no light to be found. I remember feeling like my marriage was over. My family and my entire life would never be the same. And I remember in that moment thinking, the promise that God had given me, I must have heard him wrong. I must have heard him wrong. Or he lied. Or it was never him in the first place. That could not have been true because the proof was the fact that I was separated. There's no other way around that. The proof was in the pudding. It couldn't have been real because look where I was. And for some of you, you might be in that same place right now. It might be a marriage crisis like mine. But it might be something really different. It might be something like Abraham and Sarah were going through. This struggle of infertility where you are constantly wanting a yes and you keep getting a no time and time again and you are hopeless that it's ever going to be a yes. You might be a parent who is estranged from their child and you just feel the, the space getting further and further and further away. This might be your health. You might be chronically ill and constantly thinking, I'm never going to feel good another day in my life. That hopelessness, that's something that Abraham got. You see, we see that pattern of these mountaintops and these valley lows in the life of Abraham because the Bible, the Bible is an almanac. The Bible is full of stories and lessons that we need for our future because in those stories we see all the ways that God is faithful. In Abraham's life, these elevation changes were abundant. There were times in his life that he was killing it. He was living his best life. And then there were times where he wasn't, whether that was self-inflicted or just the nature of living in a broken world, he felt the effects of it. Being alive means that we can also expect this pattern in our own lives. Being alive means that we are going to experience our, that time of waiting at some point, and that waiting has the ability to lead to, to hopelessness. But just like Abraham, we have something that we can anchor our hope in. And that is God himself. There's a, a guy named Confucius, maybe some of you guys know about him, but he said a few important things. But this one quote that he said, it was so powerful, and I wanted to share it. He says, I hear and I forget. It's really good for me standing up here talking to you really encouraging, but I'm going to move forward. He says, I see and I remember. Okay, I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. But then he goes one step further and he says, I do and I understand. It's not until we do something that we actually understand whatever it is we're experiencing. 
And this is a super encouraging truth that I want us to, to not miss because hope is no different. Hope requires remembrance and remembrance requires action. Remembering requires us to have a faith in God that is a doing thing. It, it means we actually have to honor the places in our past, both the highs and the lows. It, we have to look back because when we look back, when we look back with intent, we actually can see that God was there in all of it. That is where scripture tells us that we can find our hope is when we see the places that God was faithful. I remember when my husband and I were separated and it was so easy in those moments to remember all of the ways that things were broken. I remember all the arguments, I remember all of the the offenses, I remember all the ways we were wrong for each other. I mean, I could give you that list. What I couldn't remember was anything good. And I knew in that moment, while we were separated, that that promise was misunderstood. It, It had to have been, because I was sitting on the floor in my parents' kitchen, completely broken, completely in despair and hopeless, and, and there was nothing that said anything different. There was, there was no hope. I was sitting on the floor and there's nothing dignified about that. My marriage was over, the promise was a lie. But as I sat there on the floor of my parents' kitchen, I got a text message. And this wasn't any kind of a profound text message, you know, straight from heaven to me, but what it was, was a text message from a friend who had actually led me to Christ when I was a teenager. She was there um, all throughout my life. We, We grew up in church, but she actually made relationship with Jesus real. And she was there when I was saved, and she was there when I was baptized. But she also was there when she played the piano as I walked down the aisle when I got married. By getting a text from that person, I immediately started to remember the places that I had been, but also the places that God had been. I remembered that when I was saved and when I was baptized, God was there. And I remembered that when I got married and I said, I promise to love you and to cherish you and to honor you, that he was there. You know, that, that, text was, that text was a gift because in that moment, I started to remember some good stuff. I started to remember the ways that God had been faithful. And what I'd like to sit here and say is that because of that text message, my marriage was completely restored and redeemed in this beautiful, quick way, but that is not our truth. What actually happened was we spent the next 18 months rebuilding a marriage that had, from the ground up, there there was nothing to even build on. We started from the bare minimum. And I have to say today that I am so grateful that we did that because today I'm standing on the stage and we've been married for nine years post that separation and we've gone through countless deployments. And in five short weeks, I'm gonna go live with him and our boys and in Chicago, and even though it snows, it's good. that's fulfillment. 
that was, that's my promise. And it, it actually isn't even in the promise that was made that I found God's faithfulness or that I understood it. It's even not in this moment where I go, man, look at where we come. The place that I really understood God's faithfulness was in my parents' kitchen sitting on the floor. That's where understanding who God is became real because I actually had to do something. I had to remember that he was there the whole time. I don't know what your kitchen floor is today, but we all have one. It might be a job, it might be family, it might be a child, it might be school, it might be your health. It actually doesn't matter what it is, we all have that spot where we're unable to remember and we need help remembering. It's in those moments where we can't sustain ourselves that God becomes real and he starts to sustain us. It's in that holy meeting place of the messy middle where things just don't look good or feel good. That's where our faith is discovered. That's where our faith is shaped and challenged. But that's where our faith is made real. It's in the places where we, as humans, feel that all hope is lost, that God lovingly pulls us in and he reminds us that he was there all along and that he's always gonna be there. It's in the moments where we believe that we've been forgotten. That God takes our eyes off of our circumstance, off of our right now, and he puts them back on the places where we've seen him move before. Because it's in those moments where we've seen him move before that we remember that he's gonna do it again because he is who he says he is and he's gonna do what he says he is gonna do. That is why remembering is important. That that's remembering in action. And one of the really, really practical ways that we get to do remembrance in action is through the practice of communion. You see, at the end of Jesus' life, right before he went to the cross to fulfill a promise that the Israelites were waiting a really, really long time to be fulfilled, Jesus sat at a table surrounded by his disciples and he told him to do something. He told him to remember. As he passed the cup, he said, take of this, drink of this, and do this in remembrance of the blood that is poured out over you. And when he passed the bread, he said, do this in remembrance of the body that was freely given for you. You know, they didn't fully understand what it is they were doing, but they did it anyway. They put remembrance into action. And today we get the opportunity to do the same thing. We get to be active in our remembrance of what Jesus did on the cross and how through his death and his resurrection, we're able to have this, this with, with God. He is with us because of Jesus, not, in, not just on the mountaintops, 
but also in the messy places that we are waiting, where we have no hope. So today I want you guys to stand with me and we're gonna take communion, we're gonna drink of the cup and we're gonna take a piece of bread and, and this is an, an easy thing for us to do, but I want you to push past that. I want you to not just eat a piece of bread and drink a cup of juice. I want you to remember, like Jesus called the disciples to remember. I want you to remember the places where God has been faithful. And maybe for some of you, this right now is a place that's really hard for you to remember. And we have a prayer team in the back that would love to pray with you. We also have a prayer wall that you can engage with. But you also can just take the communion and sit at your seat and by yourself just ask God, God, I need you to help me remember because right now I just don't. So in just a minute we're gonna come, but right now I just wanna pray over this time together. God, we are so thankful for the opportunity to come before you and to remember you and to remember what you did, to remember the body that was freely given and to remember the blood that was poured out for us. God, we are so unbelievably thankful that you are who you say you are and that you do what you say you're gonna do, God. And even more, we are thankful that that is true even when it doesn't feel true because as humans, sometimes truth doesn't feel real and God, you push through that. So today, as we put remembrance into action by taking communion, God, would you just push through all the things that are blocking us from remembering the ways that you've been faithful in our lives? God, would you, would you tear apart anything that stands in your way? God, thank you for the body that was broken. And thank you for the blood that was poured out. God, it is only because of that that we're here today. So today is Memorial Day. And every day forward is Memorial Day. And we will do this in remembrance of you.